0: Father God, we we thank you that we can come to you this morning in Christ's name. We're thankful that we can come to you praising you for the work that you are evidentially producing in the lives of the saints here at our church. And we pray that the love that we see evidentially being displayed through our concern for one another and our pursuit of one another in prayer and practically, we pray that that love would magnify the love that we've received in Christ. And we pray that we would grow in that love to such a degree that we would overflow and that we would spill over onto those around us, those in the community that we minister to, those in our family. And Lord, we pray that through that, Christ will be lifted up on high, and that all men will be drawn to Him through the love that's manifest through our growth in truth and in discernment. We pray that we would come to Your Word hungry this morning, and that You would make us hungry, and that You would feed us, and that You would produce the fruit of righteousness as a result of this feast that we received from your hand this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week in Philippians 1.9, we learned that biblical church growth begins by growing in God's love. And this morning what I want to do is I want to elaborate more on that because I think that I fell short of the mark last week. And so I want to dig a little deeper Into verse 9, and then pursue verses 10 and 11 after that. Because I think that our love, our agape, needs to be nourished. I think we need to know more about this agape, this love that we've been given, so that it will grow within our hearts and manifest itself in our lives. I think that the Apostle Paul knew that agape must be nourished in order to produce God's intended harvest. Paul knows that continual growth is not possible without nourishment. We know that in in life, right? We know that a child must have continual nourishment if he is going to grow or she is going to grow and be healthy and productive. God knows that as well. So that's why he puts this prayer in the heart of the Apostle Paul. this should be our prayer this morning as well. We should pray like Paul here. If you ever wonder how you should pray for one another, this is how you should do it. This is a divinely inspired prayer that we can follow. It's a divine gift to us. Paul here in Philippians 1, 9-11 relentlessly prays for the believers and for their love to be nourished by the truth. And that's what we'll look at in this text. So if you would, turn with me to Philippians 1, 9 this morning. Philippians 1, 9 And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul is praying for Three things to be manifest in the lives of the believers through love. He's he's praying that the Word of God would be exalted, that the hearts of people would be transformed, and that Christ's work would keep them motivated. That's really what he's getting at here. If you look on your outline, you'll see that Paul prays that their love, our love, will be, number one, nourished by knowing God's Word. That's what we see in verse 9. Paul prays that, Love will be, number two, cultivated by testing our hearts, examining ourselves, approving what is excellent. Verse 10. And Paul prays, thirdly, that love will be harvested by recalling God's work. In verse 11, he, he's praying that there will be a harvest that produces God-exalting fruit, feeds others, exalts Christ, and gives praise to God. That's what he's praying for in verse 11 as he concludes but first we're going to look at philippians 1 9 here paul is praying that number one love will be nourished nourished that it will grow by knowing god's word god's will god's revelation of his love for us he's praying for love to abound is the term that he'll use which means to overflow it says that in verse 9 and it is my prayer that your love may overflow More and more. And implied in the text here is an ongoing, relentless growth. It's not to ever pause or cease or become stunted. It is to continue to grow. And for it to grow, it has to be nourished. And so he gives us the ability to nourish it by giving us the truth. He wants this love to grow in knowledge and all discernment. Paul prays for the love of the saints to abound with knowledge here. He's praying basically for love to be nourished with truth. That's how love grows. Biblical love grows in the truth. He's praying that they would have experiential revelation of God's love for them as manifest in Christ Jesus. That's what he's getting at. This word knowledge or gnosis, epignosis is experiential knowledge. He's not praying about information to be gathered. He's praying that the information they have about God's revelation of Christ's sacrifice would transform them experientially. The knowledge he's talking about here is the knowledge of God's love that we have through Jesus' work. The love that comes to us or overflows because of Christ onto us. That's what he says I want you to grow in. See, the more we know about God's love for us, The more we love others and the less we love ourselves. We'll give ourselves away sacrificially as we look at the love that was manifest in Christ to us. We need to grow in this knowledge. So I'm going to give you a couple of passages to help us grow in this knowledge, to help us to abound in the knowledge of God's love that we have through Christ's work. So turn with me to Galatians 4. Galatians 4 gives us the knowledge of God's love for us. How it came to us and how this should transform our thoughts of God and our thoughts of others. And we see what God has done for us who are unworthy of His grace. It's amazing what it says here in Galatians 4, 4-7. This is a revelation. This is the knowledge of God's love that's revealed to us through the incarnation of His Son. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Born of a woman. Born under the law. I mean, that's amazing in and of itself, is it not? God the Son incarnated Himself because God the Father sent Him to live the righteous life for us that we could never live. Born humanly like us. Born under the law of God so that He could fulfill it for us. But that's not all He did. He did this in verse 5 to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God's love came to us through God the Son's sacrifice here so that we could experience the love of God as sons. Not as strangers, not as slaves, but as sons. And because you are sons, verse 6 says, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father... So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Okay, I believe that the Spirit inspired Paul to write this in Galatians so that the heart of the Galatian people would be transformed in light of this love that they've received from God that now allows them to call God not just King, not just Master, but rather Father, Abba. And and he expects something to to happen to these saints in light of this truth. So when you come to Galatians 5, which we won't look at now, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And that fruit actually seeks the good of others. And it reflects the love we receive from God the Father. He wants us to grow in this knowledge so that we would respond to this in a proper way by loving others. Look at 1 John 4 says about God's love to us that we should grow in, that should transform our thoughts of loving others. Just think about this. If, If God loves us this way, if God has shown His enemies this much grace and affection, then how should we be affected by this when we deal with our enemies? When we deal with those who are opposing us? Should we not... Should we not, as forgiven sinners, be gracious toward other sinners and patient and pursue them continuously, relentlessly, because God did that for us? We have no right to hold ourselves above them. We are to serve them because God, who could hold Himself above us, sent His Son to serve us. 1 John 4, 9 states states it this way. He defines love for us. In this, the love of God has been made manifest among us. This is the manifestation of what God's love looks like. Here it is. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Now, consider who the we are here. The we are sinners, rebels, enemies of God. Yet He sends His Son to die on the behalf of those who would crucify Him willfully and joyfully he does so so that we might live through him live doesn't mean just get eternal life it's the quality of the life that we have received the quality of the life we've received is the life of christ the life that we should have lived apart from the fall in the garden No, know this is real life is manifesting this reflecting this because this is the work of christ in us verse 10 says here's what it looks like in this is love Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation of sins. And then He says, respond to this, beloved, in verse 11. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I mean, we as as forgiven people, we should see the needs of others as above our own. We should extend ourselves for the sake of of God's glory and their good. That's what Paul's praying for. Not just in the context of the church, but even in the world, as we go into the world. But in the context of the church, he's praying that their love would still abound in knowledge because there is going to be difficult days ahead for this church. They stood with Paul when he's being tried for the gospel. When persecution comes, it's going to come to them. It's going to try to wedge between them and their love for one another. It will cause others to strive to put themselves above one another rather than to serve one another, to protect themselves. So he's praying that they'd be guarded against that by abounding in this true love that gives itself away, agape. He's praying that it will grow, that it will overflow as it's nourished in the truth. Let me just submit this to you today. When when our love When our agape seems to dry up, our concern for others seems to dry up, or when our agape, when our love seems to become self-focused rather than others focused, when our our affections are focused on our own condition, our own comforts, it's, it's usually it's usually because we have neglected to truly ponder God's love for us in Christ's work. We've forgotten what God has done for us and Why he has done this for us and to us. He granted us forgiveness. He granted us his love, his son's sacrifice, so that we could exalt him forever by reaching out to others, serving them as Christ served us, and obeying his commands. Christ commands us to love one another. The love that is revealed in Christ is the love that we are to reflect to others. The love revealed in the Gospel is granted to us ultimately to glorify God for eternity. But, understand this, the love that Paul's talking about, it's not just to ultimately glorify God in eternity. The love that he's praying for is something he wants to see happening immediately. More and more abounding. He's praying for love to be given to them so that they could experientially glorify God in their relationships on earth immediately. We all know we're going to have perfect love in heaven, but we already have perfect love given to us that we can reflect here on earth when we ponder the truth of the love we've received in Christ. It should cause us to humbly give ourselves away for the sake of His name and for the good of our friends and brothers. Paul's praying, he's praying for the immediate result of God's love to be revealed in our love for others he's he's not satisfied with the hope of eternity the day of christ he wants that to be manifest now in the church he wants the church to glorify jesus immediately by caring for others that care comes through a proper understanding of god's love for us and it's not only that if you look at verse 9 he he goes on to pray not only for relentless growth in the knowledge of god's love he also goes on to pray that this love will be nourished by something else you see the other word and all discernment, that phrase. He prays that their love will be nourished by discerning. Now, discernment can be used in a couple of different ways, but in this context, what he's saying is, I'm praying that your love will be nourished by knowledge of God's love, and you'll discern how to apply the truth about God's love in your lives. Discernment here has to do with applying, making a decision based on the knowledge you've received in the truth. Making a decision on how to apply that truth toward others. So in verse 9, Paul prays for an increase in the knowledge of God's love so that we can discern how to love others. Discernment is, is nourished, and discernment grows out of proper knowledge. The knowledge that comes through God's revealed grace through Christ and His Word. The discernment in this context is basically this: it's the, he's praying for the ability to make a practical judgment about how to apply God's love immediately. Discernment in this context means: God, I, I want you to give me an ability here to. See and perceive the needs of this immediate context of this church and our lives with one another so that I can take the truth I know of your love for me and pour that into others so that we as a body can glorify Jesus on the day of Christ. Discernment teaches you to take the truth and put it to your feet. Apply it by pursuing one another making practical judgments about how you can serve others based on God's love for us in the immediate context of the local church. And then that overflows into the world and evangelism. If you look and think about verse 9, go back with me to Philippians 1.9 if you're not there. When he says this, he says, this is my prayer. This is the Apostle Paul. And this is his His affection of Christ pouring out through him saying, I petition God for this, for your love to abound in knowledge and discernment. Let that that sink in for just a minute. Let that examine your heart this morning. Do you love the truth? Do you love the gospel? Are, are Are you nourished by the truth about God's love for you in Christ? If you are, it's because you're feeding on the truth. You're feeding on His Word. But if you're feeding on His Word, ask yourself this other question. If you're nourished by knowledge, are you discerning the needs of those around you and seeking to share that knowledge of God's love practically, immediately? Are you feeding on the truth and sharing that truth with others practically are you discerning are you just caught up in this wondrous love God has for you and you forget about those around you who are in need of nourishment and continued encouragement the more we grow in the word the more we get in the word the more we should be getting involved in one another's lives that's what Paul is praying for that's what Nate and I are praying for in our local church We're praying that you will grow in the knowledge of Christ so that you will discern the needs of others around you and forget yourself, follow Jesus, and serve your brothers and sisters and reach the lost. If you are discerning this, this is wonderful. But I think we can all excel still more at this. As you discern the truth of God's love for you, look around and seek to edify others in this local church, Edify others who faithfully serve you in this local church. You know how to do that? You know how to edify? Edify means to build up. You talk to them. You pursue them by seeking to edify them and build them up because they are a blessing to you. We are living stones linked together. You need to edify one another. It's it's not sufficient that we come here And we show up, we shake hands, and we go home. We need to understand that each one of us are working together using the spiritual gifts that God has given to us to glorify Jesus as a church. And we need to thank one another for exercising those gifts. If you're discerning the needs around you, you also need to seek to care for those who are in need. Are you observing those in the church who have needs financially? Those who have needs physically, are you observing as you, as you ponder how God has observed you and saw your needs and cared for you specifically, spiritually, and even physically, does that move you to consider the needs of others around you and give to them sacrificially? Giving to others and seeing their needs is a result of the gospel fruit of righteousness coming out of us, reflecting Christ. And, and listen, some of you, some of you think you, you don't have any way to help those who are in financial need or physically in need, but you do. You have your life, you have your time, you have your ear to go listen to them and to pray with them, spend time with them, and give financially to them if you can. The Philippian church gave out of their poverty to help others. And if we discern how Jesus has gave us everything through becoming poor like us, coming into this world like us, and making us rich in Him, we could give away whatever it takes to help those who are in need in this church. If you discern the needs around you, you will be seeking to cultivate many things in the saints here in our church. If you look at what God has given us and how we are stewards of His grace and His truth, then you will be seeking to cultivate purity in one another's lives, spiritual maturity in one another's lives, and love in the body of Christ by speaking the truth to one another personally. Ephesians 4 talks about that. If, if you truly understand what we're called to be as a church, pure and undefiled, set apart, growing in the truth, then you will go to one another when you see one another stumbling in the dark. And you'll speak truth to one another in love. Not to tear down, but to build up and to protect. And then you'll take what it says in Galatians 6, and you'll bear with that person. You'll bear their burden. You'll walk with them by the way. You will carry their burdens along with them until they can walk in grace once again. That's that's what discernment is all about here. Discernment here in this text is the church reflecting the love of God in Christ who discerned our great need and came and did something about it. He did something about it personally, sacrificially, and he did something about it continually through his word by speaking the truth to us and sanctifying us. Church, the love he's talking about in this context comes from a biblical knowledge about God's love for us. And biblical knowledge will always and should always lead to practical discernment. We need to pray for this to to be displayed in our lives and continue to grow in our church. Biblical knowledge and practical discernment are displayed clearly in Scripture, in Philippians, a matter of fact. If you look with me at Philippians 2, 5, you can see the combination that Paul prays for magnified in Jesus Jesus was filled with biblical knowledge and practical discernment. If anybody was completely full of this, it's Christ. Philippians 2, 5 states it this way. And have, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So have this pattern of thought in your mind, the pattern of thought that Christ had, knowledge, knowledge. Knowledge of His relationship with the Father that would drive Him to the cross on our behalf. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be asserted, but made Himself nothing, taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, His mind was, he, He desired to do the Father's will. He had epignosis of the Father's heart. He knew the Father's love for sinners who were needy like us. And so He was obedient to the point of death because He had biblical knowledge. And He pursued This knowledge through his sacrificial life and that's practical discernment he was nourished by the knowledge of God's will and his discernment was obviously concerned about our need and he went to the cross in our place his love nourished us his love was expressed through practical discernment he made a judgment he made a judgment based on the knowledge that he had been given about God's love and about our need. And so he gave himself away to love us, to show us God's love. Christ's love gives us practical insight into how and why we should nourish one another. Stay there in Philippians, look a little higher in chapter 2, verse 1. Here here we see how Jesus' love will give us practical insight into how and why we should nourish one another. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, the, the thought process, having the same love, agape, being in full accord and of one mind, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. He tells us we are to do this. We are to to exercise discernment, exercise practical insight by giving ourselves away the way Christ did by seeking the interest of others above our own interest, our own personal comfort. Paul's prayer in Philippians 1, 9-11 is an example of what Christ did for us in Philippians 2. Paul's prayer itself is actually informed prayer. It's a biblical prayer. It is a prayer that is informed by biblical knowledge and it is empowered by practical discernment. Paul does the same thing that Jesus does here in 2, 1 through 9. Paul assesses the situation around him in light of the grace that's been given to him, that he's been called to be an apostle and a messenger of the gospel and to go to people who are in need and share the truth. So Paul, through this knowledge, is empowered to pray and put his life on the line for these church members at Philippi. He's practicing discernment here. He sees their need in light of God's grace and love that has called him into the ministry. And his love here in Philippians 1 is an abounding love. Again, remember where Paul's at. Paul is there interceding in a prison facing death yet focused on the good of others. This is Christ-like agape. He is looking at this church and he is saying, my affections are the affections of Christ. I'll I'll do whatever it takes. I'll petition God on your behalf continually until Christ is manifest in you. And Paul's not doing it because it's a lovely church. It's not a lovely church. There's a couple of women that are just bickering and fighting and nagging and having all kinds of problems, stirring up dissension in the church. He's not praying for them because they're worthy or because they're good he's praying because they're needy in light of the grace he's been given he should do this continually and we should too we should assess our situation and recognize that we're all needy and we've all received more than we could ever earn in christ we should continually don the attitude of jesus here have the mind of christ that we consider others as more important than ourselves that's what paul's praying about the love that Paul is praying for is, understand this, the love he's praying for in Philippians 1.9, it's agape. This love he's praying for is not sentimental. This love is not based on our loveliness. He is praying about God's agape being manifest in us. God's agape, God's love is illustrated to us very clearly in Scripture. It never comes to those who are lovely. It comes to those who are needy. It comes to those who need God's love, mercy, forgiveness, and grace, but can never earn it, don't deserve it. It comes to us through a torturous cross. Look with me in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, to see God's love made manifest. You want to see practical discernment? This is it. This is practical discernment. God assessed our need and then God did something on our behalf through God the Son's sacrifice. This is interesting. We see agape illustrated in this text. What we see here is very interesting in light of Philippians 1, 9-11. Here in Luke 23, we see Jesus dying for His enemies. He's not dying for them because they're lovely or worthy. Yet, Jesus is dying for them, expressing genuine love for them. Jesus dies expressing love sincerely. He dies for sinners first theologically. He dies for sinners theologically due to his knowledge of God's will. The thing that drives Jesus to the cross isn't our worthiness or our loveliness, it is God's will for us to have this sacrifice given on our behalf. So the Father wills it, the Son obeys it willfully because He has a knowledge of this. So He dies theologically first for the glory of God. Sincerely giving His life as a ransom. Willfully. And secondly, Jesus dies not only theologically, but Jesus dies practically due to His discernment of our neediness, not our loveliness. Agape, assesses why God said that this sacrifice was required. And he says, I see it from your perspective. They can't do anything to earn your favor or your love. Therefore, I will go because they're needy. I discern this. I see this. Now I need to apply what I know. That's what he does when he goes to the cross. That's what we see in Luke 23:33." And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do, and they cast lots to divide his garments. You recognize in verse 34, Jesus saw our neediness. We, like them, if we would have been there, we would have done the same thing. Because we don't know what we're doing. We are insufficient on our own. We are sinners at heart, dead spiritually. And so Jesus assesses our situation here, and He discerns what to do. In light of the God who forgives. So He pleads our case before God, praying for our forgiveness. And verse 35 says, and The people stood by watching. And If, if you don't think that these people are, are unlovely or unworthy, then read this. People stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at Him, saying, He saved others, let Him save Himself. I mean, Jesus sees the neediness immediately of the rulers. Then they said this, If He is the Messiah of God, the Christ of God, His chosen one, let Him save Himself. If he's, they're mocking Him. If, if He's truly God's Son, if He's truly the Messiah, let Him save Himself. The soldiers also mocked Him verse 36 coming up and offering him sour wine and saying if you are the king of the jews save yourself there was also an inscription over him this is the king of the jews one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying are you not the messiah save yourself and us i mean this if this if this doesn't reveal to you practical discernment nothing will Jesus, knowing the righteousness of God the Father and His holiness, saw the wickedness of these men around Him, these women around Him at the cross, and He could have said, Damn them. Curses be on them. But instead He says, Forgive them. He applies the knowledge He has of God and His grace and His loving kindness and His justice and says, Forgive them based on what I will do for them. That's agape. If, if Jesus here would have done what the criminal said in verse 39, if He would have saved Himself and them, all of us would have perished. We would have all perished. So instead of saving Himself, which He had a right to do, He was righteous and holy and undefiled, set apart from sinners. But instead of saving Himself and glorifying Himself there on the cross, He stayed on that torturous cross because of our neediness. Because of the knowledge he had of God's will for us. Jesus discerned our need and knew God's will and then he obeyed. Church, that, that is love. That is agape. Discerning God's will. Seeing the need in light of God's will for all mankind. And then acting out of that need for the benefit of others. Reflecting Godlike love. That's what I think Paul's praying for in Philippians 1.9. Let me give you a little understanding, a little illustration of agape love. Agape love does not have to be sentimental. There can be sentiment in it. There should be sentiment in it that grows out of it, okay? But it's not what drives it. It, it does not have to be sentimental, but it must not be hypocritical either. It cannot be hypocritical either. It must not be hypocritical. And I was thinking about how, how to illustrate that and I was thinking this is, this is going to fall short because everything falls short of God when we try to illustrate something about God but I was trying to think about how agape shows up in the Imago Dei and the image of God that's reflected in all mankind. And I think that we see a dim reflection of agape even in the lives of unbelievers. Those who are reflectors of God's attributes to some degree. We see glimpses of agape in them we see glimpses of agape love through their sacrificial love and i was thinking about this in light of veterans day and i was thinking about how many times there are stories about men who have thrown themselves on grenades to save strangers to save people whom they have no feelings for whatsoever church that's not hypocritical It's not pretended love that's looking for a reward. That is self-sacrificial love that promises no reward. That's just a dim reflection of the reality of what's in you because of Christ. Agape is not hypocritical if your desire for God's glory and the good of others drives you to do it. If if your desire drives you to obey God according to His revelation and do good for the sake of others around you without anything in return given to you, that's agape. Considering others as more important than yourself, not because you're going to get something out of it, because you're going to give something to them that they need in light of the grace that's been given to you in Christ. Agape is not sentimental nor hypocritical. It is this, it is self-sacrificial, and agape is supernatural. It is not something that we stir up within us. It's something that is imputed and credited to us through the fruits of Christ. Agape is the fruit of Jesus' love overflowing in our hearts and onto others. But that love has to be cultivated. That's what Paul's praying about in Philippians 1. If you go back there, Philippians 1.10 Paul is praying that our love would be cultivated. Not just nourished, but once it's given the right nutrients, it needs to be stirred up. It needs to be cultivated. So it'll grow. It'll be fertile ground for love to grow in. That's what he's praying for there. Secondly, in Philippians 1.10, Paul prays that number two, love will be cultivated by testing our hearts or our desires. Do you desire to do good to others because you're going to get something in return? Or do you desire this because of what God has revealed to you in Scripture, He's done for you in Christ, and you see the needs of others as more important than your own? Philippians 1.10 says, He's praying this so that, He's praying this love will abound in knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So here in, in verse 10, Paul prays for love to be nourished so that, you see that that's the purpose clause, circle that, that's the purpose clause. Here's why he wants love to be nourished and abounding. So that they may approve what is excellent. And the word prove here means test. And it was a test that was given to pottery in the time of Paul, where people who would cheat you would take a piece of pottery and it would be supposedly sold as something valuable, but it was actually cracked and flawed and they would cover it with wax to cover up the flaws and you couldn't tell that unless you held it up against the light then you could see the flaws in it you could see that it wasn't pure that it wasn't true it wasn't excellent and so when he says i want them to grow in truth and grow in application of the truth so that they may approve they may be able to test their desires their hearts the light is the light of the truth that's revealed in christ's sacrifice for us He says, I want you to hold up your love to the light of the truth about God's love for you in Christ. And church, I think think that Paul intends for this to, to cultivate tenderness in their hearts. To break up fallow ground. To break up dry, dusty, cold hearts. When you contemplate the love of God the Father, how it was expressed to you through God the Son's willing sacrifice, His death, His butchery on the cross on our behalf, so that our sins would be laid on him and his righteousness given to us, we should want to reflect that. We should want to emulate that. We should want to accentuate that. We should want to show that to others through our life of love for others. Knowledgeable, discerning love approves, it tests things. It approves, in this context, when he says approving things, he's saying, basically, I want you to test to find out what is most important to God here. Approves means test to see what is best or what is excellent, not just what is good. Like, make a a decision to do the good thing. I'm going to do the good thing versus the bad thing. No, he says, I want you to do the best possible thing to glorify the love of God. That's what he's praying for. He is praying that the knowledge of God's love will change them, that it will move them, it will cultivate them to seek the best for others, not just the good of others. He, wants others. he wants others to benefit more than you're benefiting from his love. He wants you to want that. He wants you to desire that. Now, your love is going to grow in that as a result of that because that's the result of Christ's fruit in us. Christ became a slave for us. He considered us as more important than himself. So that his love would grow in us and be manifested through our lives. Paul's praying that knowledgeable love, discerning love will cause us to seek the best for others no matter what it costs us ourselves. That's what Jesus did. He wants us to do that so that we would magnify or glorify his love. And that love should change us. It should transform us and cause us to love others with grace and patience and mercy and express to them the gospel that transformed our life through our actions and through our words. So, so thinking about this, are, are you praying like this when you pray for one another? Are, are, you, are we, we, you and I, are we willing to pray that our love would abound by approving what is best for others, even if it means humbling ourselves, denying ourselves, suffering loss for the sake of those who need the good news. And I don't mean just unbelievers. Believers need the good news. The good news of God's love that pushes people beyond human love and affection and sentiment and pushes us into action on behalf of their good and God's glory. I think that's what Paul's praying for. I think that In Philippians 1, 9-10, that's what Paul's teaching us to do. I think he's teaching us here that God's love should cultivate the reality of who we are in Christ. It should cultivate life in us. The fruit of Jesus in our hearts should be cultivated through this truth. And it should pour out of us and nourish others. You're, You're given the fruit of the Spirit so you can feed others, not yourselves. We need to pray for that. I need to pray for that desperately, that my life would reflect the love of Christ as I grow in the knowledge and discernment of His will and His word. The only way I can do that is to test my heart. I need to examine my heart in light of His word, in light of Christ's sacrifice. That's what Paul prays for when he says, approve what is excellent in verse 10. God's love should cause us to approve or test or cultivate what is excellent in our hearts. Find out what's in your heart. What's driving you to do good to others? Are you doing it to get something in return? Are you doing it to follow the Father's will and to benefit those who need it? Test your desires in light of God's love, in light of God's activity, how he expressed his love by sending his son to sacrifice himself for our good, does your love reflect that? Paul tells us we should do that for a reason there in verse 10, part B. Test your heart. Check your desires. Do your desires reflect the desires of God, the, the desires that Christ had? If so, he says, here's my, my other desire for you, is that you would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. You examine your heart and it will cultivate the truth of what you have received in Christ. And then that will transform you and give you pure and blameless desires. That's what he's praying for. Pure here means sincere. It speaks of sincerity of motives. He's praying that after you examine your heart in light of the truth, that your motives would be sincere and driven by the truth. And they would also be blameless. And that simply means Without offense, or to avoid offense. And in the context, it means, are your actions that you're discerning in light of the truth, are your actions blameless? Are they seeking to avoid offending a Christian? That's the context. God tells us to test our hearts to see if that's the case, and cultivate love in our hearts as we do so. He tells us that in 1 Corinthians. Look with me there, 1 Corinthians 10. This is what agape will do. This is what agape will seek. This is pure and blameless in the day of Christ. This is something that God is glorified in because it reflects the love that we have in Christ. 10.23, he says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all all things build up. Now, let me just state something quickly in verse 23. All things are lawful that God says are lawful. That doesn't mean murder is lawful. That doesn't mean adultery is lawful. That's not what he's saying. In the context, he's simply saying all things that God approves are lawful, but not all things that we do are helpful. Okay? Not everything you do is edifying others. Not everything you do is following God's desires. He says all things are lawful, but not all things edify. They don't build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the marketplace without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake, notice this, this is agape. This this is what Paul's praying for. He is praying for this to be cultivated, that the growth you have in Christ will produce this nourishment for others. Okay? So test yourself. Is this are you more concerned about doing whatever you want to do or what's going to benefit others here? For the sake of others. Verse twenty eight says, Then do not eat for the sake of the one who informs you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that? For I give thanks. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. His overriding principle here is, look, if you want to glorify God, reflect God's love for others, consider their needs, respond to those, discern those. We see that again in Romans 14. In Romans 14:13, God tells us to test ourselves. Does this, does this reflect our desires? Is, is this what's most important to us, or is the assertion of our liberty and our freedom and our own pleasure more important than others? He says in verse 13: Therefore, do not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. That's agape. I know and I am, and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. That's not love. I'm flaunting my liberty, my freedom. Not a problem for me. I don't care what anybody else thinks. That's not agape. By what you eat, do not destroy the one... For whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men, approved, tested, examined by others. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding, that's edification. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is wrong, he says, to do that. That is, if your desire is driven more by your freedom and your liberty and your rights than the good of others, you're not cultivating agape. You're reflecting selfishness. But pure and blameless love We'll seek to nourish others as we are nourished in the truth. We'll seek to set aside our rights for the sake of those who are in need. Agape love causes us to strive to look like Christ, to be selfless, to strive to prevent others from stumbling. If you go back to Philippians 1.10, I find it interesting that Paul frames up this prayer a couple of times by, by saying, do this, I'm praying for this, this is, this is my desire because it's God's desire. I'm doing this, though, in light of the day of Christ. He's praying for their love to abound and be evident in light of the day of Christ. He's reminding them here that on the day of Christ, on the day that Jesus returns, our sincere love for God will be revealed. He's reminding them this to motivate them to action. He's reminding, this, this, reminding them of this to move them To discernment. He says, on the day of Christ, our sincere love for God will be revealed. And here's how it will be revealed. By your pure and blameless actions toward others. The reality of what's in your heart will be approved and revealed on the day of Jesus Christ. What motivates you, what moves your hearts will be revealed on the last day. Sincere motives and blameless actions will magnify jesus on the last day i think paul reminds us of that in verse 10 for a purpose i think he does that to cultivate us to move us stir up our hearts lest they become hard and indifferent and self-focused he knows that the truth about god's love that we see in scripture that truth about god's love is revealed in christ he knows as we look at that we should be applying that toward others and when we do that He recognizes on the day of Christ, that that seed that God planted in us, that seed of love he gave to us in Christ, will bloom on that day. It will bear the fruit of Jesus in our lives by what we did on that day. It will be revealed. That's how Paul ends this prayer in verse 11. He's reminding them of this. He's reminding them that the seed that God planted one day will bear the fruit of the root. It will bear the fruit of Christ if God planted it. It will be completed, but it will bear fruit between now and the day of Christ. In verse 11, he's reminding us that the fruit of God's love will grow in the soil that's nourished by God's Word and Christ's work. Look what it says there. Thirdly, is Paul's desire in Philippians 1.11. Paul prays for this. Paul's desire is that Thirdly, love will be harvested by recalling God's work. Verse 11, he's praying that this love will be approved, this love will abound, and that we as a result of this will be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He says you're going to be continually filled with this and it's going to continually manifest itself because it comes to you through Christ. It's effectual love. It's immediate love that will approve what is pure and blameless. It's discerning love that will move you to action. It's knowledgeable love in light of God's revelation. And it comes to you because of God's great love for you in Christ Jesus. It's the fruit of righteousness that Jesus bore imputed to us. That will be manifested in every Christian. If it's not, you're not a believer and on the day of, the day of Christ, it will be evident that those who are in Christ will have a harvest to bring before God of righteousness, righteous deeds. One eleven. in that text here, when he says be, being filled with this, he's saying this. Paul's praying that the evidence of what God began in us, six, what God began in us will be made evident by the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. That passage 1 6, when it says that this work will be completed, he's assured of this. He's just as assured of this as well, that the fruit of righteousness will be manifest as evidence that we are in Christ and that he is in us. The fruit of Christ, as we know, comes through Christ's righteousness that is credited to our account. That's Paul's way of saying, don't forget the good news. You're going to bear fruit. It's going to be righteous fruit. It's going to be approved, excellent fruit. It's going to be pure and blameless fruit. It's going to be discerning and knowledgeable fruit. Because God chose you. And he chose to send his son to die for you. And his righteousness is imputed to you. And that righteousness is like a seed planted deep in your soul that will bring forth the fruit of the Lord Jesus Christ on the last day. He's praying that the fruit of Christ will fill their lives and they will overflow and feed and nourish others. That's the point of this. He's reminding us that abounding love is the fruit of God's love that's planted in us through Christ's work. He's saying, I believe, according to God's promises, the knowledge I have of the truth and your neediness in Christ's work, I believe that this love that you've received will fill your lives with the fruit that points to Jesus' work. The fruit of sacrificial love. Filled there in verse 11 means to furnish abundantly. Paul's desire in prayer is that our pure motives and our blameless actions would continue to abundantly furnish proof that we are rooted in Christ's love. He wants them to have assurance immediately That they are loved by God and the promise of verse 6 will come to pass. He says, this is the way you test it. Are you abiding in His love? Are you abounding in it? Are you growing in it? Are you reflecting it? Are you discerning it? Are you seeking it in a pure and blameless way? This is God's will. It's because of Christ's work. Look with me at John chapter 15 to see that. John 15, 1. Paul, Paul's prayer is focused on the truth that's revealed here in this text. It's focused on the reality that this abundant fruit will come from us because of what God has abundantly furnished to us through Christ. It's the natural fruit of the believer, or supernatural fruit of the believer. I, he says in verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. That is, that is, that is like what Paul is praying for in Philippians 1.9, that their love would abound and produce more fruit as it's nourished in this truth. Listen, if, if your love falls short and you know it's falling short and you're self-focused and you're not considering the pure and blameless things that you ought to be doing like you should, you're not approving what is excellent, just know that if you're being corrected right now, It's because God loves you and he's pruning you. It's proof of his love for you, not a denial of his love for you. He's doing this so that you can actually bear more fruit of righteousness, more of the fruit of Christ in your life through your actions. And I hope everyone's feeling conviction here, because I think all of us, starting with me, fall short of Christ's love, his agape. And I need to be nourished. I need to be cultivating this. I need to be applying this so that Christ will receive the harvest of glory on the last day. He says in verse 3 that these saints he's speaking to, he says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Then he says this, because of this knowledge that you have, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. It comes through Christ. It cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the true vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul is reminding us of that in Philippians 1.11. This abounding love, this approving love, this pure and blameless love, this love that causes us to be moved into action will bear the fruit of righteousness because we are united to Jesus. We're in the vine. It is flowing through us. It cannot bear fruit on its own. It has to be tapped into the root. And listen, when, when, when trees bear fruit and when trees have branches grafted onto them, The graft doesn't say, I'm sticking with the tree. No, it's the sap. It's the fluid that's running through the tree that gives life to the branch, that sustains it, that holds it to itself. And that's that's the way it is with us. The fruit of righteousness that flows out of us is proof that it has came to us through Christ. We are united to Him. He's praying that this will continue so that it will bring glory and praise to God on the last day. Biblical love there in Philippians, I think biblical love, he's telling us, will be harvested. It'll be harvested from our lives on the day of Jesus Christ when he is manifest. It'll be harvested from our lives because God is the one who grafted us into the living root and produces the fruit of righteousness that flows out of us. That's, that's Paul's confidence in Philippians 1.6. He's confident that God will complete his work and he's confident that God will make it evident through our growing love for one another here on earth. God will nourish what he planted by feeding us the truth about Christ's love for us and his word. God's love will cultivate compassion and action in our lives and move us to seek the good of others. God's love will then, on the last day, bring forth a harvest of praise to his name for the fruit and the evidence of Christ's love in our lives. This is Paul's relentless passion in this prayer. I I, I want you, I want you and I to read this prayer every time we come to Philippians and be moved by the knowledge we have here to action. This is what we should be praying for one another as a church. As individuals. This is what we should pray would be manifest in our lives when we evangelize. We should pray that we would be affected so deeply by the truth about God's love for us that we would give up everything to glorify Jesus and do good for others. Our lives are meant to magnify Christ. That's when we have this promise of fruit that will be displayed in our lives at the end. The fruit is produced by him. It's produced through us and it feeds others. And so we should count that as a high privilege and pursue this and pray for this. I think this is something worth praying for and pursuing. So let's, let's pray together right now and ask God to do the very thing that he has stated here that he wants to do in Philippians 1, 9, through 11. Heavenly Father, it is our prayer to you this morning that our love here would abound, would grow, would be nourished by the knowledge that we have of your love for us in Christ. And as a result, God, we pray that that knowledge would move us to discern the needs of others above ourselves and seek them out and serve them so that we could do what is excellent, do what is pure and blameless for the sake of your name and for the good of those you place in our life. Father, we pray that as we do this, that our lives would be filled with the evidence of Christ's righteousness, so that on the last day we don't receive any praise, but we cast our crowns at the feet of King Jesus and thank Him for the righteousness that has not only nourished us, but will nourish all those that we touch. Help us today to commit to praying this prayer every day for your glory and for the good of others in our body. In Jesus' name, amen.